All right, well, good morning, First Baptist Church. Honored to be with you this morning. Kurt, thank you for that introduction. It almost got away from you, but you reeled it back in. Good job. Well, I'm honored to be here. My sons were in the first service. Josh is in college in Houston. Ben will be a senior at Martin High School, but my wife, Teresa, is in the front row. Um, I want to recognize, first off, the college students. A lot of UTA students from our church I know from our campus ministry, but I was a little nervous they were going to show up with, they were talking about air horns and things such as these. I'm glad it was a little more reined in. But I do want to recognize and honor Connor and Patience. Connor Toriabla is our new college minister at our church, and I've known these guys. I've known these guys since their student days, and uh, Connor's a good man and a good minister, and we're lucky to have him. On our church staff, I think my grad and career class that I teach Sunday school is somewhere back over in this area. So, hey, guys. And anytime I take this pulpit, I recognize the balcony because my family sits in the balcony. Y'all may not know this, but there are people up there. They're part of our church. You should get to know them. But uh, (laughs) thank you, balcony. But I do work for Texas Baptists. And we are 5,000 diverse churches working together to do statewide missions. And I am your missionary to the UT Arlington campus. A couple sentence report um, is that God is at work. Just two weeks ago, a young man named Diego heard the gospel, bowed his knee and received Christ. Then the week after that, just a week ago, another young woman said she was ready to follow Jesus. And just this week, another young man said he's ready to follow Jesus. And for years, we see week after week, young men and women turn to Christ. We get to see young Christians built up in faith and then sent from their college years for the rest of their life, servants of the church and disciples of Jesus. So thank you, thank you, First Baptist Church, for your support of the ministry God's called me to do. And I'm honored to get to do it. We are... This morning, continuing our study through the book of Ecclesiastes. Last week, Kurt Grice uh, brought our message. Kurt is, I like to say, a brother from another mother. He is an inspiration to men like me, short and balding men who love Jesus wholeheartedly. But seriously, I mean, y'all asked a college minister to preach, so this is what you get. Next week, my longtime friend from her BSM days, Katie Reed Hodges, will be in the pulpit. But this morning, we will look at Ecclesiastes chapter 5. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, and the author is going to discuss the proper attitude for worship and the proper attitude towards God's word. The proper attitude, how to show up for church to have the right heart to engage in corporate worship. That's what he's going to talk about today. Now, can I make a confession to you? Is this a safe place? Can I air my laundry here? I oscillate attending worship between being captivated by the service, by the worship, by the word of God on the one hand, but other times I have to confess, sometimes I show up and it just doesn't click with me. Sometimes I can be bored. Can you relate? Now, never with Dr. Wiles preaching. It never happens here, of course. Um, I don't know which camera's on. This one has a light. So Dr. Wiles, never with your preaching am I ever bored. (laughs) 
But very often, the condition of our hearts, not the quality of the music, not the preaching, but the condition of our hearts determines the quality of our worship. So if I don't show up and truly worship God, it's on me. The condition of our heart determines the quality of our worship. A couple of stories, personal stories I'll tell you to illustrate this. One is a few years ago, I was privileged to attend a conference for young Christian leaders in Dallas. It was a packed house of young, hungry ministers. The venue was beautiful, light and sound. Fantastic music um, led by a national recording artist who wrote many of the songs that churches like ours sing. Every detail was choreographed to draw people in to the worship of God. And I distinctly remember standing about two-thirds of the way back during the middle of the service and just thinking, I'm not feeling it today. I don't know what it is, but I am not worshiping at all. Contrast that with about that same time, I was able to take a trip uh, to South Asia, and we were in a very large city of 20 million people, worshiping in a very small apartment with missionaries, um, and the heat was stifling, the furnishings were simple, and all we had was a very old CD player, and they had a CD of uh, Chris Tomlin, the worship leader, Chris Tomlin, and I remember we sang, we, we listened to the CD and sang along with it the song, You're the God of This City, where he sings about the brokenness you can feel looking out over a place where most people don't know the Savior. And we listened to a CD and we wept over the lostness and, and, and over what, how God's word was impacting our hearts. That was a powerful worship service. And it was so simple. I think back to my college years where God changed my life. Five or six young men in a crowded dorm room, open Bibles, open hearts, out of tune guitar. We would all do anything for Jesus in that moment. Those were powerful worship services. You know, there are tribesmen worshiping under trees in Africa this morning who can give more pure worship than the most extravagant cathedral can draw out. Because true worship's about reverence and hunger for God. It's about reverence and hunger for God, not all the accessories that accompany worship. George Mueller was the British evangelist. He started over a hundred orphanages, schools, children's homes. He was famous for his relationship with God and especially for his prayer life. But you may or may not know George Mueller through his life read the Bible cover to cover 200 times. Not only that, 50 of those times he read the Bible cover to cover on his knees. He was a man who pursued a deeper relationship with God. And before George Mueller's death, a journalist interviewed him and he asked George Mueller, what do you still want to accomplish? What's left for you? He'd already become, had quite a bit of fame in England at the time. What's left? And here's what George Mueller said he still wanted to do. He said, I want to read more of the Bible because I still know so little of the excellence of Christ. Mueller hungered for God's word because he hungered for God. 
May we all have the same hunger for God and may when we show up for worship, that be what drives us to lift our hands in praise, to sing, to open our Bibles and see what God's word is for us. May we all be like George Mueller. Maybe for you, a particular style of worship feels worshipful. At the 8.30 service this morning, it felt very different than this service. We sung hymns, the lights were bright, they weren't dim, the, 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 these ones didn't move around. This is very different. I wore this jacket for them. Maybe a particular style feels worshipful for you. But the thing is, worship isn't a noun. Worship is a verb, but it's a verb that always requires an object. We never just worship. We always worship something. We always worship something. And when we show up to this place, we have two options. We can worship God or we can worship the experience of worship. In church, the charge to us this morning is to worship God. So let's go. Ecclesiastes 5, the author calls himself Kohelet in Hebrew, or the preacher. And throughout the book, he calls many of our human pursuits, many of these things that we lose sleep over, many of these things that seem like such a big deal, he calls them meaningless. He calls them vanity. He calls them empty. The Hebrew word is Hevel, it literally means a vapor or smoke or a mist. A good way to think of Hevel is on a cold morning. Dear Lord, please give us another cold morning. (laughs) On a cold morning, you exhale, you see your breath, you want to reach out and touch it, but the moment it reaches your hands, it's like it's not there, it vanishes. And he says, that's what the many of the things we lose sleep over in this life, they're so temporary, they're like Hevel, they're a mist. In the New Testament, James alludes to Hevel in chapter four where he says, what what is life? What is your life? You are but a mist that appears for a second and then vanishes. So in Ecclesiastes, the passage we've come to this morning turns to worship, specifically the worship that the Jews engaged in in their temple in Jerusalem. But there's gonna be echoes of what Jesus is gonna say down the road in John chapter four with a woman at the well where they talk about what is true worship. And Jesus says to her that true worship, it's not about the location. It's not about the ritual you go through. It's about spirit and truth. So let's read Ecclesiastes 5, one through seven. The preacher says, guard your steps. When you go to the house of God, go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God. God is in heaven and you are on earth. So let your words be few. A dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to fulfill it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It's better not to make a vow than to make one and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin and do not protest to the temple messenger. My vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? Much dreaming and many words are heavy, meaningless. 
Therefore, fear God. Church, the tendency of the human heart is to make worship about me and not about God. And the tendency of, the heart, of my heart is to behave like my words carry more weight than God's word. And so the two big ideas that we hope to draw out of Ecclesiastes this morning is one, the word of God. It's sufficient. The scriptures have the words of life. We don't need to tell God. We need to hear from God. The word of God is sufficient and the worship of God must be reverent. So let's take apart this passage this morning. If you don't mind putting your eyes back on the text, we'll start in verse one where the preacher says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. He's gonna tell us how to come to church. I know you think I get in my car, I drive here, got my spot in my pew. He's gonna tell us how to come to church. That word guard means be attentive, be careful. Guard how you approach God. Whether that's coming to church, it can also apply to prayer. When I pray, I don't wanna casually pray and not reverence God as God. So be careful when you approach God. You know, you can dress casual. They dress up a little more in the early service. You can dress casual, but worship must be reverent. The preacher continues. He says, go near to listen. Go near to listen. Every parent knows that there's a difference between hearing and listening because we've all talked to our kids and we know that the sound waves are going into their ears and they are nodding up and down, yes, but they are not listening to what we have to say. Right, parents? Yes, indeed. But church, the Bible is God's word. Our church believes this, it's part of our doctrine statement. We believe that this book is a divine book, that it is God's gift to us, that its words are from him and they are true. Stop and think about that. It is a miracle. God has spoken to us. We don't have to sit around and wonder, what does God think? We don't have to sit around and wonder, what is the truth about God, about me, about how he sees me, about how I know him? about how I should think about this world. We don't have to be left in darkness and confusion. He's spoken. It's awesome. So when we come to church or when in the mornings you open your Bible, you're opening the word of God. Let's listen. Let's open our ears and open our hearts to hear from him. He goes on in verse one, he says, Go near to listen rather than offer the sacrifice of fools. Ooh, it's getting, stepping on our toes now who do not know that they do wrong. So what does that mean? The scholar, Ian Provon says that, that the phrase, the sacrifice of schools, Provon teaches at Regent College. He's an Old Testament scholar. He says, the line refers to those who perform the rituals of worship without any deliberate intention to bring their whole self before God in an attitude of reverence. The sacrifice of fools is a careless observation of religion unattached from any genuinely Godward movement of the soul enacted out of custom, social pressure, or habit. 
The author of Ecclesiastes says, a fool comes to church, but doesn't worship. He's saying it, not me. So church, let's come to church to worship. He goes on, verse two. He says, don't be quick with your mouth. Don't be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God because God's in heaven and we're on earth. So if anybody has something to say, it's him. And if anybody needs to listen, it's us. It's what he gets to. Abraham Lincoln famously says, said, it's better to remain silent and be thought of as a fool than to open your mouth and remove any doubt. Jesus essentially says the same thing in uh, Matthew chapter six, where he says, when you pray, when you talk to God, don't be like the hypocrites. They just talk to be heard by other people. Don't pray like the pagans who think that by repeating things over and over and over that somehow they can turn God into a vending machine and just get the thing out of them they want by saying the right words over and over. He says, no, when you pray, pray simply. Our Father who's in heaven, you're holy. Your will be done on earth the way that it is in heaven. He just, he says, approach God simply and humbly. When you hear the word worship, what do you think? If we talk about the church's worship, what do you think? A lot of times we think of music, right? There's worship and then there's the sermon and then there's the prayer. But worship's a lot bigger than music, amen? Sometimes when we think of worship, we think of a posture. So if I have this posture, I'm worshiping. If I have this posture, I'm worshiping. The New Testament word for worship is proskuneo, and it actually is a word that indicates a posture, but it's not this posture. It's the posture of humility and contrition. It literally means to kneel down or to bow down. Literally, it means to put my face on the ground, prostrate, kneeling before God. Pros implies a downward motion, kinetic, kineo is where we get our word kinetic. So to move myself downward is to worship. So when I come to church, the posture I want to assume is God, you are God in heaven and I'm on earth and I humble myself because I need something you have to offer. That's true worship. And if we come to church and we say that to God, then we're worshiping. The wise person realizes God is God and deserves my utmost respect. Now, I'm not a Roman Catholic. They probably wouldn't let me preach if I was this morning here in this church. But about half my family is Roman Catholic. I've attended a lot of Catholic masses through the years. Some of you have a Catholic background. Maybe you are Catholic. Um, I have a lot of respect for the Catholics, um, it, it's a conflicted feeling whenever I attend a mass because I know enough of the doctrine to know that I have some disagreements. I don't think the sacraments are what save me. I think it's only faith in Christ that saves me. So I understand the theological differences. But one thing I love about attending worship in a Catholic church is the reverence. Because everything, you know, when, when, you, when you come to church here, I walked over to the college student section, we fist bumped, we high-fived, we gave hugs. I love that about a church like ours. We're family. It's warm. But it's not like that in most Catholic churches. You walk in and it's hushed. 
You walk in and the architecture tends to draw your eyes upward. The walls tend to be covered in scenes from the scripture, often pictures of the risen Christ. Often you kneel before you take your pew as an act of contrition, as an act of worship. Sometimes there's a smell of incense in the air and I love that it's referent. And so we don't have to mimic the outward signs of reverence, but God, may we have reverence when we come to your house to worship your name. May when I open my Bible to read it in the mornings or whenever you read your Bible, may we approach God with that kind of reverence. Uh, This Tuesday, I went to our church's men's Bible study on Tuesday night, and we talked about in Isaiah 6, there's this picture of the holiness of God. And if you know that that scene from Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets to see God seated in the heavenlies on his throne. We don't know if Isaiah was whisked to the heavenlies or if he got a vision, but either way, he saw God. And the picture is fantastic because it said the Lord is seated on his throne and the train of his robe fills the temple. That's full of symbolism. I wish we could unpack. And he's surrounded by these heavenly beings with six wings and day and night they shout, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And it says that even at their voice, not God's voice, at their voice, the temple shook and roared. Get that picture of God in your head. When we sing songs in this room, that's who we're singing to. When you bow your head in your home before a meal, before lunch today to pray, that's the God we pray to. He deserves our reverence because he is huge. He's magnificent. He's beautiful. You remember Job in the Old Testament? Job suffered greatly. Tragedy upon tragedy upon tragedy, and he never cursed God. But finally in chapter 38, after all these tragedies befell him, he finally looked at God and he questioned the goodness of God. And then God says, I'll answer you, but brace yourself because it's about to be harsh. And so almighty God, if you, you know the story, if you know the story, he starts questioning Job and he says, Job, where were you when I created this universe? Where were you when I laid the foundations of this universe? Where were you when I measured the galaxies using the span of my hand? Where were you when I filled the oceans up with water out of the small of my hand? Tell me, Job, tell me, where were you? You who questioned my Wisdom. And in chapter 42, after four chapters of God questioning Job, Job replies and he says, You asked, Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It's me. And I was talking about things I didn't know about, things far too wonderful for me. I'd only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes and I take back all that I said. You see, to encounter God is to revere God. And if you're suffering this morning, if you have trouble, if you have stress, God is near you and God is with you. But the best posture, whatever your place in life, is to come to God and say, God, I'm not going to tell you. I'm not going to wag my finger at you. God, I need you. One of the big ideas this morning is that we approach God to learn not to teach. We approach God to listen, not to tell. 
A few, a few times in my life, I've been able to have a small audience with a great person. Somebody who was maybe known to be a, a, a writer of great books, a great Christian speaker, a great Christian leader. And a handful of us got to be with that person for an amount of time to ask some questions. And invariably, there's somebody in a room like that. Maybe once or twice it was me who had something to prove and who instead of listening to the great person and instead of asking wisdom from an older, wiser person, we talk too much. And I've been in a setting where I wanted to hear from this person, but somebody else who had less wisdom, less age, less experiences, just wanted to talk about themselves. And they went on and on and on and on. And you just want to say, stop talking. Let the wise one speak. But we're that person in worship way too often. The Dutch philosopher Kierkegaard, like, oh, brother, who's this, who is this guy about to, is he about to bore us? Well, Kierkegaard was a Christian, and he compared worship to a theater. And it's not a bad comparison, because if you look at this room, we have seating, we have a platform, we have an audience, and we're tempted to think of worship as if we're in the audience and the ministers are on the stage and they're performing for us. They're singing their songs, they're leading their music, they're preaching the sermon, they better be funny, but also applicable, also interesting. And we tend to think of the ministers are on stage and God's over directing behind the curtain, whispering to the ministers, encourage them in this way, inspire them in this way. But Kierkegaard says, that's not how it is. From a heavenly perspective, the audience is an audience of one. And God is in the audience. And all of us are on the stage performing our worship to be pleasing to God. God, I'm here for you. I'm here to praise you. And the spirit of God's over, um, and the ministers are the ones that are over behind the curtain. And they're whispering to us, worship God. They're whispering to us, make much of him in your heart. They're whispering to us, he's beautiful and his gospel's good and give your life to him. So the preacher continues in verse three. He says, a dream comes when there are many cares and many words mark the speech of a fool. It's a hard sentence, but basically the dream he's talking about here, this isn't some kind of a divine vision. It's not the kind of, weird dream you have when you eat too much pizza. This is waking up in a cold sweat. This is not being able to fall asleep at night because your mind is racing. The preacher essentially is saying that stressing out about life causes discontentment. Can I get an amen? Stressing out about life can make us discontent. He goes on. He's gonna talk about vows now. He says, when you make a vow to God, don't delay to fulfill it. Now, making a vow was a particular kind of sacred promise that you would make at the temple and you would maybe promise to make an offering if your prayer request was granted. And the temptation was to avoid fulfilling the vow once the request was answered. And the preacher says, don't vow foolishly. Have integrity. Keep your promises to God and he wraps up his passage in verse seven and he says, much dreaming and many words are heavy. They're vanity, they're meaningless. Therefore, 
fear God. Sometimes we get uncomfortable with the language of fearing God. And to fear God doesn't mean terror. It doesn't mean be scared of God. What it means is to give awe and reverence, deep reverence to God. Now, we're not Old Testament Hebrews. We are New Testament Christians. And what the Old Testament called fear, I think the New Testament calls faith. So we're not just called to fear God. We're called to have faith in Christ as Christians. And so I made a commitment in my ministry that I would never preach or teach without sharing the Christian gospel. And simply put, the Christian gospel is this, that there we have a great God. He is marvelous, magnificent. He created everything there is. He created you and I, he made us in his image. He is a great and loving and merciful God, but we have committed great sin. And every one of us, by our choices, by our actions, We have cut ourselves off from God, but God is good and sent his son Jesus as savior to this world. And through Jesus' life, his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, by trusting that finished work, by putting our faith in Jesus, we can be saved. When it comes to vows in the New Testament, Jesus really only talked about two. When he announced himself, he announced his ministry at the beginning of his at the very beginning, he says, the kingdom of heaven is here. Repent and believe the good news. So the two vows that Jesus says are for us is turn from sin and follow me. Many of you in this room have done that. You've put your faith in Christ. You're following him. If you haven't done that, you can do that today. You just simply say, Jesus, I believe in you. I wanna follow you. And the Bible says he will save you. So I wanna shift for, the net, for the, this last part of this message. And I wanna talk about the biggest problem hindering my worship. What do you think is the biggest problem that hinders our worship? And I'm here to tell you, it's me. We're the biggest problem hindering our worship, ourselves. It's me thinking that when I show up, I'm the main thing. Martin Luther, the reformer, theologian, he said that pride is the mother of all sin. That pride is pregnant with all the other sins. Because pride is basically me looking at God and me saying, yeah, I know, I know what you say, but I think I know better. God, I know what I know what you want from me, but I think I'm gonna do what I want instead. And if we're honest, we all got it. You know, I don't just wake up every single morning saying, God, today I only wanna ever do what you want me to do all day today, every second of the day. Sometimes I wake up and I think, I wanna do what I wanna do today. I've got good ideas and I want people to respect them. We all have pride. And we bring it with us into church. Pride makes me, Focus on me. And so when we come to church, if our goal is to worship God, we have to contend with pride. We have to decide, am I here to worship God or to have some personal experience where God's part of it, but maybe he's tangential. In my doctoral studies, one of the things I learned is that the, the sociologists have different ways to measure different cultures and compare them to each other. We can 
compare American culture to the culture of other countries. And there's one metric that America, on all these different ways of rating cultures, there's one metric where America always comes out on top, number one in the world. You know what it is? It's individualism. Compared as contrasted with collectivism, but we are the most individualistic country in the world, followed by Australia, then the UK, then the Netherlands. We're number one. We're number one, right? Number one. But you got to understand, this is not normal. How proud we are of ourselves to be an individual. Compared to the rest of the world, we got more of it. There's a UC Berkeley sociologist, Robert Bella. And 40 years ago, he, he described a new American religion. And it was followed by exactly one person. Her name was Sheila Larson. And in his 1985 book, Bella coined the term Sheilaism to describe this new religion. Because uh, Bella said that when he asked her about her religion, Sheila said, quote, I just listen to a little voice inside of me and I do whatever it says. So rather, in her religion, instead of listening for the voice of God, instead of adopting some kind of guiding principles, Sheila listened for the voice of Sheila. But guess what? I'm tempted to follow a religion called Garyism. And so I'll pick on somebody. Who's, who's over there? Isaiah is one of my college students. Isaiah loves Jesus, but he's tempted to follow Isaiahism. And every one of you is tempted to follow youism because we're all tempted to say, I know best and I know better. Bella coined the term expressive individualism to describe the worldview of Americans. And he coined that term 40 years ago, and we haven't toned it down since then. Our pastors talked about expressive individualism in his sermon series back in the fall. But this worldview says that the most authentic, the best way of being human the most ideal way of being human, the highest way of living is to act according to my inmost feelings and desires. It says that society, my parents, religion is just here to hold me down and oppress me. But when I'm free to be me, then I'm living my best life. It's literally the theme of every Disney movie, right? somebody's holding some young person down and they're usually old and stodgy and then I just need to be free to be me and then the music swells and that's the movie. (laughs) Individualism is the air we breathe. We're like fish in water who don't even realize that water's around us. It's what Shakespeare was talking about in Hamlet when he said, to thine own self be true. At UT Arlington, we work with a lot of international students. The biggest country sending international students to UTA is India. We talk to a lot of students from India. And there's a traditional saying in Hinduism that India has 330 million gods. Well, as of this year, the United States has 329 million people. And we could be possibly about to catch up with them. Because there's a big difference between my truth and this truth and and the truth. 
There's a big difference between my truth and God's truth. And whoever you are, but especially if you're on the younger side of this room, there is a tendency to say what I think matters. But if we say Christ is Lord, then what he says matters most. God is almighty. God is all knowing. God is all wise. Jesus is the author and perfecter of my faith. I had the privilege of growing up in the greatest musical decade in human history, the 1980s. Thank you. Some of you have that same privilege, Gen Xers. And in 1989, the Billboard number one song was by the Swedish pop band Roxette, and it was called Listen to Your Heart. Listen to your, I'll sing it for you now. Not really. Listen to your heart. There's nothing else you can do but listen to your heart. But Jeremiah 17, 9, the prophet says the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Our hearts lie to us. You see, my heart tells me that I'm okay no matter what, but God's word tells me to examine myself and see if I'm in the faith. My heart tells me that what I do in secret doesn't matter, but God's word tells me to be holy as I'm holy. Martin Luther, again, in his book, The Bondage of the Will, he says we're never truly free. We're always in bondage to something. One of two things. We can either put ourselves, make ourselves a servant of Almighty God, and we can be a servant of God. But if we don't do that, we're just simply in bondage to our vices and to our sin. And so it's not a question of how am I truly free? It's just which do I want to bow my knee to, to my sin or to my Savior? The Apostle Paul says the exact same thing in Romans chapter 6. But this is the fight of the Christian life. To put to death myself and to live for Christ. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves daily, take up their cross and follow me. So church, in worship, when you show up, bring your whole self to God, heart, mind, soul, strength. He deserves it. Um, stand up comedians, I think are the secular preachers of our day. They stand in front of an audience. They give social commentary. My favorite stand-up comic is Brian Regan. He's a clean comic, so it's okay. You don't have to judge me too hard on that one. But he has this bit where he talks about the me monster. The me monster is the person who shows up for the dinner party and all they want to do is talk about themselves. So the me monster is just waiting on you. And as soon as you finish the story, he says, well, that's nothing. Listen to this. And he talks about his story. The me monster um, is watching you and you've been in a conversation or you've been the one in the conversation. And the whole time the other person's talking, you're just waiting, waiting, waiting for them to finish because you already know what you're gonna say, but you're not actually listening to them. So you can say as soon as they stop talking what you wanna say. Don't show up to church like that. I'm tempted to do it and have done it far too many times. So the applications this morning, the big idea are the word of God. 
It is sufficient. It is God's truth. We, like, like Psalm 42 says, let us be like deer thirsting for water in a desert. God's word is sufficient. It is our truth. And God's word God, and the worship of God should be reverent. Let us bow before him. I was trying to think how to make this practical. And I thought of a couple suggestions. Next week, show up for church. How do I want to make it not boring? How do I want to come to church to truly worship? Number one is just show up. Actually show up. Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, the author says, and let us consider how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Let's not give up meeting together. Like some people are in the habit of doing, but let's encourage one another. It's a command. Worship together with God's people. So come, participate online, in person, but be part of corporate worship. Number two, make up your mind and decide to worship. 10 seconds before service starts, 10 seconds before I read my Bible or pray to remind myself why I'm doing this goes a long ways. God, for the next hour, I'm yours. Set aside distractions as hard as that may be. Some of you have kids in service with you. That can be really hard. Set aside distractions the best you can. Check your motives. Am I coming just to keep up appearances? Am I coming to be entertained or am I coming to worship him? And third one, last one, worship all week long. Worship all week long. Even in ministry, it's easy for me to go through my week and not really seek God hard. If our minds for 167 hours are far from God, we never read our Bibles, we never listen to worship music in the car, we never strive in prayer, then it's gonna be hard to get into it on Sundays. But show me somebody who seeks God simply throughout the week and they probably come hungrier for God to worship. I'll close with a quote from the Anglican Bishop J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says, let us never forget that our feelings about Sundays are sure tests of the state of our souls. The person who can find no pleasure in giving God one day a week is manifestly unfit for heaven. Heaven itself is nothing but an eternal Sabbath. If we can't enjoy a few hours in God's service once a week in this world, it's plain that we could never enjoy an eternity in his service in the world to come. And then he promises, they shall find Christ and a blessing while they live and Christ and glory when they die. Church, may we find Christ like that. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus, the author, perfecter of our faith, our savior, our king. And we give worship to you this morning. We recognize that you are the holy, the almighty, the all wise one, our source, the one who sustains us, who gives us life. And like Charlie's saying, our breath, you're our everything. And so God, I pray when we, pray to you, when we open our Bibles to hear from you, and when we show up to this place to worship you, 
we would do it with the reverence you deserve. 